Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on this Thursday night. Personal finance coming up later. Plus, of course, uh, we've got small business tonight and uh, we've invited uh, somebody who was last on The Money Show at the time of our 1,000 Rand Challenge a very long time ago, and I feel quite guilty about it. Uh, But Pablo, exhausted from the NetBank Business Accelerator, drained from the NetBank Business Accelerator, begged for time off. And so we said to him, sure, you can have the time off. Gives us a great excuse uh, to have Tracy Webster, who is, she calls herself Chief visionary oh dear maybe we should cancel um but she's in charge of of uh, the enterprise room and she wants to talk to us about the africa innovation summit happening in june this year and i saw a great quote today from strive masiwa he's one of the telecoms entrepreneurs of africa saying yeah everybody is on an equal footing you, nobody's got an advantage if you're an engineer nobody's got an advantage if you're a builder or a farmer all you've got to do is add a little extra innovation and you've got something unique that nobody else has got. And so we'll talk about the Africa Innovation Summit. That's all coming up later on this evening on The Money Show. Uh, fast fact question for you this evening. Which two political frenemies share a birthday today? Frenemies. Friends. Enemies. Frenemies. It's a good word. Doesn't really make a commitment either way. <laughs> Which two political frenemies share a birthday today? 31702 31567. Send us an SMS if you think you know the answer to the frenemies who are years apart but share this day as their birthday. 31702 31567. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. The Money Show, of course, brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Uh, SAA has appointed a guy pivotal in the turnarounds of Old Mutual and Nedbank. 2004-2005, both businesses found themselves in serious trouble. That's more than a dozen years ago. Uh, and now I see that he's been appointed the interim chief financial officer at SAA. His name is Bob Head. He's also, until recently, served as acting chief financial officer at SARS. Now he's taking over another fraught portfolio, and this is at the National Carrier at SAA. And you can bet your bottom dollar, if that's your last dollar, if you're SAA, that if there is anything worth saving at SAA, if there's a restructuring opportunity that can be achieved, um, then Vuyani Jahana, the chief executive who is getting his feet very firmly under the desk, he's been there now for four or five months. He's getting some really good his wingman you could say uh, bob head coming in uh, to help him in the restructure and the redevelopment and hopefully uh, the saving of saa good appointment today 702 and cape talk the money show 
The Steinel story is enough to make you weep. It's developing more plot twists than an episode of Game of Thrones. There's more blood on the floor than an average episode of that particular series. And with the share price down 98% from its peak, and like the fabled TV series, we see keep seeing business leaders by many in the market who were seen as heroes being gradually, their reputations being killed off. The JSE take, uh, talking to Steinhoff and also to the Frankfurt Stock Exchange about whether or not the company has actually breached listing requirements. And this is a company that has sailed very, very close to the wind for a very long time. We're learning more and more about the way in which it's operated for uh, in the last four months than we probably have at any other time in the other 20 years of its listed history. But 98% of its value is gone. It has been completely obliterated from the value of the share. Now, Yanni Rousseau is head of this university's School of Economics and Business Sciences and joins us on the line from Johannesburg. Um, he's recently been thinking deeply about this. He's been writing extensively about it as well. Prof, when you look at the mess around Steinhoff, you... Uh, contend that although Marcus Euster put up his hand on the day that he resigned to say this was me and me alone, um, that it is simply impossible that a disaster, the scale and the magnitude of Steinhoff could have been cooked up in isolation. Good evening. Good evening to the listeners. Yes, indeed, uh, as I've said before, surely Mr. Marcus Euster did not uh, sort of walk around that night and changed figures without anybody seeing him. Uh, okay, so Marcus, you, you, you contend did not act alone. You don't point any particular fingers at any individual, but you do suggest very strongly um, that the board was asleep at the wheel at best. Yes, indeed. Uh, there's no doubt in South African company law and in pub- published financial statements that boards of public companies are responsible for the published financial statements. Now, in the case of Steinhoff, we've not yet seen the 2017 financial statements, and the board at the time was, and the remaining board members of that period still are, responsible for the publication of those statements. And we now see the statements of earlier years being restated, which means that the figures published before could not be relied on. And again, the boards at that time were responsible for these financial statements. So I place the problem at the feet of board members who served at the time of the crisis in December 2017. I mean, Chris Avisa in Parliament um, said that he was genuinely shocked by what they were finding out gradually within Steinhoff. He said he'd, he, he had been, effectively, that he'd been duped as the controlling shareholder, as the chairman of the company, as a long-running board member of somebody who clearly trusted Marcus Joester, um with his life savings, um, and he claimed to have been duped by this. Why can we not accept that at face value? Well, naturally, uh, he has to speak for himself, but it's difficult for me to accept that board members can serve in very big fees as board members and have no idea what's going on. At the minimum, then, those board members should offer to repay the fees that they've earned as Steinhoff directors if they clearly had no idea what was going on. Uh, uh, how complex would it have been? for a single individual to have pulled off a fraud on the scale suspected to have been perpetrated at Steinhoff? Would it even be possible, even for the most influential, the most intelligent, the most capable Machiavellian individual in the world to pull it off? 
Well, uh, we will have to wait for the restated financial statements, but in my mind, it would simply be impossible for one person to pull that off and to get that pass the board, uh, except if the board is literally asleep. And then, as I've said, the board must own up and the remainder of the board members who served in 2017 at the minimum should repay their board fees and should quietly disappear. But to the contrary, what we are seeing at the moment is that the remainder of the board members, Dr. Steve Boyson, Dr. Johan van Seil and Ms. Heather Son, are insisting on additional fees being paid for them for efforts that they've put in since December 2017, so-called to save the company. And the more they try to save the company, the lower the share price goes. So my sense is it's time to step away and give somebody else a chance. And now these directors, there was a proposal um, that was going to be put to the AGM, which has been called without financials to to, to look at ahead of time. Um, the proposal, though, seems to have been withdrawn. Um, you say it's a worthwhile exercise to zoom in on it. The mere fact that the proposal was even made by people who'd been on the board during the time of crisis, that they should be paid very substantial in, in the hundreds of thousands of euros in fees in order to do this work. Uh, the mere fact that they suggested it is in itself, uh, you would argue, a big problem. Indeed, in the initial announcement of the annual general meeting, it was very neatly stated it it is proposed that, so I wouldn't like to know who it is. Introduce me to it. So somebody must have made this proposal. I've written to the company secretary of Steinhoff, who up to now has not answered my question, who is it? So this is the one problem we have. Owing to uh, pressure about this proposed payment, this has now been removed from the agenda of the AGM, but it has not been removed altogether. And in the sense statement announcing that this is removed from the uh, agenda of the AGM, it is now declared that this matter would be put to the remuneration committee of Steinhoff after the uh, AGM. Now, this is completely unacceptable. These board members clearly don't understand the damage they've done to Steinhoff, to the shareholders of Steinhoff, and to the market economy as we know it in South Africa, that they can keep on insisting going forward with this proposal is completely unacceptable. And sh it really shows how uh, incapable these people are of understanding their actions, and they should therefore just not be on Steinhoff's board. Um, it, also, it, it also asks questions, it also raises questions about their fitness to serve on other boards. And I really urge other companies where these individuals serve to consider whether they are fit to serve on their boards. Uh, I want you to elaborate on that because that is a very, very strong statement from somebody, a senior academic, the Wits University, head of the School of Economic and Business Sciences. Please substantiate why it is that these individuals should not be, in your view, allowed to serve on other boards or why other companies shouldn't countenance their serving on those boards. Well, clearly they didn't discharge proper corporate governance at Steinhoff while they served on the boards of Steinhoff. So how can we have any confidence that they're discharging proper co corporate governance at any other boards on which they serve? So 
uh, given their corporate governance record at Steinhoff, what should make us believe that they exercise better corporate governance on other boards where they serve? Secondly, they clearly don't understand how unacceptable their action is to insist on so-called extra payments to try and sort out the mess that happened under their watch. Also, something that strikes me as incredibly concerning is that it's now four months since it became apparent that Steinhoff was in big trouble. The company had failed to produce its financial results and said it wouldn't be doing so, and Marcus used to resign. It's been four months. Four months to try to solve a problem that is so big that even PwC is saying we're not going to get through this until the end of the year at least, suggests that the problem was so enormous that if you missed it, you are either not paying attention or there's something more serious at play. Yes, indeed. And it really raises questions about corporate governance, as I've said. And I come back to my point. We have to remember that the board, the board members are responsible for the financial statements of the company. Now, if these financial statements, as I've said, are restated, they clearly miss something very, very large that happened over a number of years because the financials of previous uh, years are also being restated. So, uh, hence my remarks about the fitness to serve. Professor Yanni Rousseau, that is going to put a cat amongst the pigeons. It really is. Thank you. He is the Wits University Head of School of Economic and Business Sciences, Professor Yanni Rousseau, this evening, suggesting that directors who have been on the board at uh, Steiner for some time should not be on the boards of other companies. 31702 31567. Fair comment? Give us a call. The Money Show. The Markets. I'm still quite gobsmacked by the strength of the statement being made by Professor Yanni Rousseau this evening, the head of Wits University's School of Economic and Business Sciences, that directors who served on the boards of uh, of Steinhoff in the run-up to the calamitous collapse um, shouldn't be allowed to serve on other boards. Graham Kerner with the Kerner perspective this evening. Does the prof have a point? I think he does. Um, I think, you know, from the beginning when this thing broke, I was sort of saying, well, where where was the audit committee of the, the board? Of course, we're all very grumpy with uh, Deloitte's, but uh, I think... The I, audit committee is a committee, it is a subcommittee of the board whose yep. job it is to make sure that the financial results that are being reported by the company will stand up to scrutiny when the auditors come to sign them off. I mean, in very simple terms, that's their job, right? Yeah, so I've actually got, it's a couple of years old, but the the Steinhoff annual report open here. And if I can just read the audit committee's functions, it says, the audit committee has the responsibility of reviewing the finance function and has satisfied itself as to the expertise, resources, experience of the company's finance function. It also has the responsibility uh, to appoint and review the performance of chief internal executives. But it then goes on, Bruce, this is, I think, where, where the, 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 the cracks ap- appeared and where the vulnerabilities might have been, where you say, well, you operate, you, you, you're listed in Frankfurt, your head office is, 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 uh, is in, in, in Holland, and you, uh, you know, you've got operations all over the world. Quite importantly, it says the audit committee members attend divisional uh, audit committee meetings, and the audit committee from time to time invites divisional audit committee uh, members to attend the meetings of Steinhoff Audit Committee. So it's not as though you're sort of sitting, you know, at, at a distance and peripherally, and I think in that sense the, the prof has a point. Whether the whole board should fall on their swords or not is, a, is, another, is another matter. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very... It's, it's, it's dangerous to, to sort of put everybody with the same 
paintbrush. You don't know what's happened in those meetings. It'd be interesting to see board minutes, of course, to see yeah. who raised what when yeah, yeah, yeah. and what questions were raised. I mean, th- these are complex and issues. But, um, yeah, people are getting very cross about it. I mean, 4% of my retirement annuity <laughs> was in Steinoff. Yeah. Um, I'm over it now. But, you know. You, well, I'm, I'm you, still you, not you over ne- it. I, you, I, ne- you never make that money back. It is gone forever. You know, that is 4% of your the value of your old age, uh, money that you've carefully squirreled away. Um, the, in the wisdom of the fund managers who <laughs> manage the retirement annuity, they popped it into Steinoff, like many others. Look, I think, you know, when, when people take a swipe at, at Christo Visa, the one thing I will say is um, I honestly do believe he was duped. Um, you know, I think just before that, he, him and Joester uh, often were accused that Marcus Joester was effectively his portfolio manager, and I think both of them took great exception at that. But I think that there was an element of truth because, mm. you know, Christopher Visa wasn't looking for your average, you know, common or variety, garden variety portfolio manager. He's looking for somebody who, who, who sort of shared his, his values. And the fact that, that they lined the, 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 the shop right into Star Transaction up tells me that I believe that, that Christo Visa was, was blindsided. They were lined up, but Whitey Besson seemed to see through it and uh, while Touché. he was there and said, uh, absolutely not, you're not going to do it, not while I'm here. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, but uh, that's why I don't believe that, 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 that Christo Visa, for example, was mm-hmm. aware of it. But, uh, uh, but one person alone cannot do it, but I do think it was concentrated at the top and the fact that this business operated in so many jurisdictions and had debt all over the world created the confusion and created the the opportunity for the, for what is i think really one person's intention to to seriously manipulate uh, financial however statement. if you are somebody with 30 or 40 years of business experience and you there is confusion and there isn't absolute clarity and you are on the audit committee of a company Agreed. your job is to seek that clarity Absolutely right. And, and, and I think that's the issue. You know, whether it's a 6 billion euro hole or 10 billion euro hole, you know, whether the property portfolio was overvalued by 30% or, you know, I still say, you know, Bruce, the, I, I'm most grumpy with the auditors. And, and I tell you why. Yeah. When you've got a, 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 a 4 billion uh, off balance, uh, sorry, 4 billion euro off balance sheet um, asset, you should be asking, is this thing recoverable? Frankly, that is where I'm, I'm most grumpy. Gugu in North Riding is grumpy too. Hello, Gugu. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Very good. Tell us why you're grumpy. I'm good, thanks. Um, Bruce, my, my question is, first of all, it's shocking that they are suggesting that they should be increasing their payment. Um, but the main thing is that they got a, a fee for the time that they were serving on that board. And that was part of their responsibility. So never mind that they're asking for an increase, but they, the company should actually be calling the money back that they paid for their service because the board members were not looking at uh, or, or advising the company as to how they were supposed to advise them. And the committee was not delivering on what she was supposed to be delivering. That much is coming out of the wash, and many people would agree with you on that particular point. Let's move uh, very briefly, if we can, Graham Kernan, on to what else happened on markets today. I mean, Donald Trump and his uh, various tweets on shiny Tomahawk missiles <laughs> being lobbed towards Syria <laughs> sent the gold price yesterday spiking. Today, yep. that gold price pulled back, platinum yep. price pulled back. Yep. But, um, yeah, markets are so twitchy at the moment. Well, Bruce, last week we were all consumed with trade wars, which looked looked imminent. And then, ironically, it was Xi Jinping who who sort of diffused that situation a little bit. And I think today also, um, 
you know, the, the Russians seem to sort of be taking a slightly more conciliatory tone. But Donald Trump seems hell-bent on looking for a fight with everybody, whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, the Syrians and the Russians or, uh, you, you know, the Chinese in terms of, of, of potential trade wars. And, you, you know, we joke about it. Um, and, you know, as, as your commentator was saying last night, I mean, a, a, a president of of that standing to be using Twitter and to sort of be, be almost commenting as, as glibly as he is about, you know, sending our shiny new Tomahawk missiles. It just, it just seems so inappropriate, but it obviously is working for him and he's, he's playing to a specific uh, audience. I wonder whether or not Donald Trump thinks he's, uh, he's achieving what diplomats take decades to achieve and that he's getting speedy results. He's got uh, Xi Jinping to yeah. open up the Chinese economy more. He's got Vladimir Putin to expose himself a little bit more. I think yeah. but Donald Trump think, regards himself as something of a diplomatic uh, unicorn, for want of a better word. Yeah, uh, the billion-dollar unicorn. <laughs> the billion-dollar unicorn. Market's up half a percent on the day. Any particular trends that you're seeing at the moment other than extraordinary volatility and the, the topsy-turvy nature of markets? Well, I think uh, today the banks were strong. As you say, the gold stocks were, were, were the biggest losers. But just I think a lot of shares are, are in a range. If you look at Standard Bank, it ratcheted up. And now it's sort of in this 210 to 220 range. So I think still people very positive about the outlook for SA Incorporated and the, and the banks. But... Um, yeah, in spite of the rand being a little bit softer, you saw the likes of you know Aspen and Bidcorp and uh, and uh, British American Tobacco all a little bit weaker. But the market is very very jittery. You know, we you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and the first thing you 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 do is you lean over and look at at, at Bloomberg or Reuters to see what uh, what Donald Trump's been up to overnight. And that's why you look the way you do. Yeah. yeah, you need some more sleep. Graham Kerner with the Kerner perspective. That was unfair. Uh, he's looking rosy cheeked and ruddy and healthy. Graham Kerner with the Kerner perspective this evening. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Fast fact question earlier on today. I asked you which two senior political frenemies, it's the best word we could come up with, um, are share a birthday today. And yes, you'll be paying attention. Lots of you paying attention. Um, Jacob Zuma, Pravin Gordon, says Godfrey in Protea Glenn. Alexis, Pro, uh, Pravin Gordon and Jay-Z. Pravin Gordon and Jacob Zuma, uh, says S. Mjako, Mpom Soma, and so many others. Uh, Lulama, also President Jacob, former President Jacob Zuma. Um, yep, they do share a birthday. Uh, President Jacob Zuma, former President Jacob Zuma, born in 1942. Um, and that makes him 76 today. And uh, Pravin Gordon, uh, the finance minister, born in 1949. That uh, would make him 69, 69 today, thereabouts. Yeah, so, um, yeah, years apart, uh, polls apart in many respects. But Pravin Gordon, Jacob Zuma, political allies at one point until uh, just over a year ago, of course, uh, the, the president stuck the knife in between uh, in, into, into uh, Pravin Gordon's back and fired him as finance minister and sent the country into a crisis from which we hopefully will be recovering. But Pravin Gordon and Jacob Zuma share today, the 11th of April, as uh, 12th of April, as their birthday. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. It's taken many, many years, but the company that owns British Airways, it's a, it's a company called International Airlines Group. They own British Airways. They own uh, the Iberia business, the Spanish, the former Spanish national flag carrier. They are buying, or at least considering buying, reports suggest a low-cost carrier 
in Norway. Um, it's uh, British Airways and International Airlines Group looking at this low-cost carrier in Norway. It's called Norwegian Air Shuttle. It's really growing quite fast and it's disrupting sort of travel in Northern Europe so much that British Airways wants to get its hands on it, or at least International Airlines Group wants to get its clutches onto it. And today, the share price of Norwegian Air Shuttle rose by about 38% on speculation that a deal might be well in the wings, so to speak. British Airways, of course, or International Airlines Group, does own 15% of Comair, interestingly enough, in South Africa. And that gives them the right to stick the the British Airways logo on the tail fins of all the Comair flights uh, that are operated by British Airways in this country. And it operates those domestic and regional BA routes here. But yeah, it's interesting to see this consolidation of the global airline industry. Proof positive that you can make money out of airlines and it is worthwhile to make acquisitions in a space that 10 years ago you would have been an absolute fool to go anywhere near. 702 The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011. 011- We haven't had any further evidence to suggest uh, whether or not there is absolute evidence whether or not Tiger Brands has yet confirmed whether or not the Listeria outbreak that killed 180 people over the last 18 months in South Africa can in fact be tracked back to its Polokwane processing plant. Um, This was the Department of Health's contention that it had found the source of this outbreak and uh, what we've seen is Enterprise suspend production at four of its factories and the Listeria outbreak has miraculously dried up. Yet, Tiger Brands, as far as we can tell, still stands by the contention that there is no evidence directly linking it to the deaths as a result of that Listeria outbreak. What happens when there's a food safety scare is that consumers do tend to vote with their feet. Nkululeko Lutuli is spokesperson for the South African uh, Meat Producers uh, Processors, I beg your pardon, Processors Association. Nkululeko, welcome to The Money Show. What has been the impact on the meat processing industry in South Africa. Good evening, Bruce, and uh, good evening to your listeners. Um, the impact of the Listeria outbreak has um, naturally dampened demand for processed meats, and um, there is a widespread uh, downturn in production throughout the industry. Widespread down, so it's hurt the production, then there's a widespread downturn. Quantify that for me, please. Well, the the numbers are, are obviously fluid um, throughout, throughout the different manufacturers, but if you look at the retail numbers that came through uh, immediately after the announcement, you were looking at about a 60% downturn in sales through the retailers. 60% downturn in sales, does that then mean that uh, there is processed meat being stockpiled somewhere or are factories um, mothballing and, and, and laying off workers? Well, you will know that the the uh, outbreak was contained to uh, three different facilities and, and those facilities uh, took the necessary steps to recall products and uh, I'm sure that whatever stock they had Um, is being contained in in a safe environment. However, it was an industry-wide problem uh, in that processed meats as a category was affected. And and so a lot of factories are currently uh, either, you know, suspended uh, production or have gone on short time of production.
And this has got devastating consequences, of course. I mean, people can find alternative food sources, but for people dependent on their livelihoods, people working in these factories, not linked to Enterprise and Tiger Brands, other, other producers of processed meats are now feeling the cold wind of association. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, as a category, I think we, we play a space in the market of, of affordable meat protein, and that's both to the consumers and the manufacturers. Um, if, if the question that is being asked is what is the impact on employment, um, the downturn in manufacturing and sales necessarily leads to the affordability of, of companies to sustain production. And so there has been a layoff of workers and, and short time um, oh, uh, implemented oh, by manufacturers. Are we talking tens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people affected? The... Association, which is SAMPA, uh, has contacted its members and, and from accounts uh, recently done, we estimate about 1,690 jobs uh, to date. So 1,690 jobs affected or 1,690 jobs lost? Being cut off uh, or those? does that include the people who are being short-time? These, these, these are cut-offs. Um, the, the short-time numbers are slightly less, ranging between 250 and 300. Now, perhaps I'm not particularly observant on this, but I'm not seeing an industry-wide drive to restore confidence in processed meats. Have I missed something? Yes and no. Um, the the SAMPA is a self-regulating uh, body, and, and we have been engaging since the announcement of the listeriosis outbreak. We have been engaging authorities and government in harmonizing standards on food, on food safety production. Um, and so whilst the, the, the industry may not have taken the lead in the conversation, we were cognizant of the loss of life and, and, and the public sensitivity towards that. But since then, there has been widespread engagement with uh, authorities in stabilizing and increasing food safety standards. Is it too soon for you to be saying, um, as Sampa, poloni is a safe food to eat? Just make sure that you warm it through or that you fry it up in a pan or whatever the case might be. Um, We're not seeing that sort of initiative from the industry, which means that in the background, there's a huge amount of concern about safety generally within that industry? Or am I taking it a step too far? It may be a step too far at this stage. Um, what the, the technicalities around it uh, lie in uh, what levels of uh, the scientific aspects or the academic aspects of, of safety that there is. I think it's important to note that um, listeria is a foodborne disease, not only out of processed meats, but out of um, various uh, food products. And so the implications of food safety standards go well beyond processed meats. Um, and, 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 that, and that is where cohesion and, and interaction with stakeholders needs to come to an agreement. Uh, so at what point do we see some sort of initiative by your association um, to, to get this industry back on its feet again? Already, what, 1,690 people, according to your best calculations, are out of work as a result of a drop-off in demand and an, a drop-off in production. Another two to 300 uh, are not getting the same paychecks as they were getting two months ago. Um, this is building and is becoming a bit of a crisis, surely. Yes, it is. It is. Um the, the industry has approached authorities with uh, interim measures that can certainly be implemented uh, in a very short space of time. 
Um, these include such things as setting up a food safety council, um, adopting best practices, uh, world best practices in, in, in so far as listeria is concerned uh, and, and listeria testing is concerned, as well as just general food safety is concerned. There is a, uh, a consumer and, and, and community-based campaign that we will be embarking on um, as part of an education process on general food health safety. Uh, and so, again, it's, it's uh, a case of having engaged the authorities to, to say these are the, the, the standards that the industry is, is willing to implement, whilst regulation and, and, um, and legislation happens in the background from the authorities. Has, has food regulation been slack, in your view, as an association up until now? I wouldn't say it has been slack, but uh, I think as as the um, NICD, the National Institute of Communicable Diseases, as well as the Department of Health have um, said, is that listeria wasn't a notifiable disease until recently. And so we would have to appreciate that the, the protocols around it are, are loose at the moment, which is why the industry is saying, as an interim measure, we, we are prepared to adopt international best practice, and at the same time, give cognizance to the localized situation of whatever those international standards may mean for South Africa. Ngululeko Lutuli, thank you. Spokesperson for the South African Meat Processors Association. They're called SAMPA. Um, it's a voluntary association, self-regulating association. And yeah, we're seeing jobs being affected as a result of a dramatic slowdown in consumption of processed meats in South Africa as, a, as factories go on short time, as factories uh, stop their production facilities altogether, as an industry tries to grapple with food safety standards that need to be enhanced to ensure public safety. Don't forget, 180 people died as a result of listing area poisoning. I mean, it happened over, over a 12 to 14 month period, but it's devastating. And you can never be careful enough when it comes to public health and public safety when it comes to the stuff that you're asked to put into your mouth. The Money Show FAQs so FAQs, and you're being captivated, I think, by so much by the Sagamata story. So your money show FAQ this week, what is a unicorn? Uh, I was away on leave when the Sagamata announced plans to list. Uh, tomorrow was the listing day on the JSE. Then yesterday, they suddenly withdrew their plans to list on the JSE after the exchange told them that they'd failed to comply with an aspect of the Companies Act. They said they had, and then they said, well, we're not going to list on the JSE then, not this week. And then implying in a very long statement, which goes through the countryside and making various points that nobody understands how clever they are and they've been the victim of a media smear campaign, et cetera, et cetera, all the usual stuff. Um, but rather than fight it, Sagamata has bizarrely indicated it won't be bothering with resubmitting its listing to the JSE. I say indicated um, because that's what they do indicate. Instead, they say they might sell to foreigners or they could list instead elsewhere where they'll be better appreciated, somewhere like New York or Hong Kong. Kong. I wrote in more detail about it on businessinsider.co.za today, and you can find that story there if you're interested. But a couple of things stood out amongst all the extraordinary fluff around this listing. It billed itself as an MSP, a multi-sided platform, whatever that is. But you've been asking, what is a unicorn? Because it also said it's going to be the first African unicorn. Paul Teron, Managing Director at Festact. What is in market terms, not in my little pony terms, a, a unicorn. <laughs> oh, damn, you stole my line. No, look, uh, Bruce, a unicorn by rights is a 
company which has a market value or an enterprise value above a billion dollars. And it's a characteristic of the way global markets are now that these private companies like Uber and Pinterest and so on haven't come to the market because they've got such ready access to, you know, private pools of funding or venture capital. And they calculate the value of the enterprise, of course, by way of, you know, issuances of stock to these private investors that value the business at above that level. So there has never been, to my knowledge, uh, a South African unicorn or even an African one. I mean, there are a couple of contenders who came quite close. And I suppose if Sagamata had been able to, you know, in some kind of unicorn land, get those placements away at the level that they said that they might or were hoping to, then I guess it could have been a, a unicorn here as well. Uh, and they placed their valuation uh, on some work done in the United States. Experts, they said, in the field of valuing this sort of MSP business, the multi-sided platform business. Uh, they, they made all of these big claims, um, and one wonders whether or not it could ever have been achieved. And the relative petulance of their announcement saying, we did comply with all the rules and regulations, the JSE is wrong, but not fighting the JSE on the facts, which I found odd. I found it odd too. I read your article on Business Insider because um, all week I was waiting for the SENS announcement, which would say this thing has failed because we couldn't require or couldn't obtain the necessary funding. Because in all honesty, Bruce, you know this marketplace is not easy. The South African uh, equity investing community won't even give NUSPAS the benefit of the doubt because it owns a big chunk of ten cent. So to get a business that has been losing money, whose principal asset is a clapped-out Cape Town-based newspaper whose reputation has plummeted, is absolutely laughable. I mean, the the the, the garbage terminology that was used in that pre-listing statement, you know, beggared belief. So to have the whole thing called off because of a technicality related to the, uh, you know, CIPC, you know, the business. Uh, registration office in Pretoria seemed very strange to me, very strange. Uh, and, and so a unicorn is a business with a proven track record. A unicorn is a business with an enterprise value of a billion dollars based on the amount of money it's managed to raise from investors. Um, and, and it sort of gets these unicorn statuses updated on a regular basis. Um, how far away from a unicorn then is Sagamata? And how likely is it to find willing, happy and able investors in New York and Hong Kong, which when I last checked, were more picky than the JSE? <laughs> Well, I don't know. They are and they aren't. I mean, I think investors everywhere are picky. Everywhere are picky. When people buy stock in Uber, you know, which doesn't really make much money, they do so because they can see on the ground just how much of a phenomenal business it actually is. So those kinds of businesses can raise as much money as they want. They have no need to go to the stock market. Um, you know, Sagamartha, to be perfectly honest, doesn't have the assets, doesn't have the track record, doesn't have the record of making substantial revenue gains that would justify a rating anywhere near those kinds of numbers. You know, billion dollars, 12 billion rands, not even close. So, you know, because we can see what businesses of a similar ilk are in fact valued on the market here. We know what, you know, media businesses have had to do and how tough it's been out there to raise corporate advertising and to compete with the global tech titans. You know, it's all very well to throw out terms and say, well, look, this is an African unicorn because it's going to be the African Amazon and the African New York Times and the African Google and the African Tencent. 
But you know what? The African Google is Google, and the African <laughs> Amazon is Amazon. That's the trouble. Paul Teron, thank you, Managing Director of Vestact. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show on this Thursday night. It is very nearly eight minutes past seven. Warren Ingram standing by to talk to you all about uh, questions we've received around trading and how you should go about trading shares, playing the stock market, um, things that should make your blood run cold, really should scare you just a little bit when it comes to investing. But yeah, we'll talk about the terminology and the way in which people see the markets. That's all coming up in a couple of minutes' time. On your next Money Show, I'm going to crack open the Friday file. We'll play the brutal business quiz and test just how closely you've been listening to The Money Show this week. And we'll also recap some of the the week's big business news highlights in our best of feature, bringing you the latest markets and company news, everything you need to know about the week in money next time on The Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation, future swaps, annuities. There's a lot of financial jargon flying around. But if you don't understand it, how do you know if it's right for you? Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all. And they can give you the great financial advice you need to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to make the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an Old Mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so that you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. This is The Money Show. I'm Bruce Whitfield. Lefifi, Jennifer Cohen. Are we going to speak to her? And just We can't get hold of Jennifer Cohen. Very naughty Jennifer Cohen. Uh, we look forward to getting hold of her in just a moment. Uh, she's trying to get hold of us. Um, are, we, are we working on it? No, Tikiso uh, is... Have a look at the WhatsApp group, Tikiso. And uh, we're on the same WhatsApp group. Lefifi and I, we are. Um, and we, we're chasing you, Jennifer Cohen. We honestly are. Um, and uh, look forward to chatting to her in a couple of minutes' time. Uh, it was interesting today. The Small Business Institute rejecting the resignation offer by one of its board members, Ivan Pillay. You know who Ivan Pillay is. He was the senior guy at SARS, one of those um, who resigned after being suspended, after being accused of criminal uh, uh, of criminal wrongdoing, and then this week formally charged and his case sent to the High Court. And Ivan Pillay, criminal charges laid against him and his former colleagues at SARS. And uh, ordinarily one would expect an organization wanting to, uh, wanting to preserve its credibility to accept the designation of somebody accused of a crime but the Small Business Institute has not done that and that's a really interesting uh, point that they've uh, position that they've taken. Jennifer Cohen who is the Small Business Institute director will talk to her in just a couple of minutes time. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. It really is an odd state of affairs. We'll get hold of Jennifer Cohn. We will, um, as and when we can. Um, but first, Warren Ingram this evening with Personal Finance. Um, and this Personal Finance feature, of course, is brought to you on The Money Show every Thursday night by Ned Group Investments. See money differently. Ned Group Investments is a registered unit trust manager. Warren Ingram. 
uh, is in studio with us this evening. And we get lots of emails from people saying, uh, how do I do this? Should I do this? Oh, I've got a problem. Oh, I've got an inheritance. What a nice problem I've got. Um, tonight's question is, I'd like to trade on the market, but I've got no idea how it's done or how to go about it. It's a lovely question, actually. So, so I think um, you're probably expecting me to say, um, you know, don't do it, and 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 that is precisely the uh, that is precisely what I'm expecting <laughs> to get from you. And and I don't think, um, I, I, yeah, for me, I don't think that that's really uh, always the answer. You, you know, I think if if people are wanting to learn about how investments work, uh, they need to do it in a very careful way, and 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 not just be gung ho about doing it. And and shares, you know, investing in shares is a fantastic uh, teacher. And what you need to understand is it's going to teach you about investments and about markets for the rest of your life. So, so please don't start. If you're going to start, and we need to talk about what, where, and how, and why, and, and all of those things. But just to, uh, right at the outset, understand you're going to make an incredible amount of mistakes. The, the very best investors in, in the world over long careers will tell you that they think they, they, they have a superb career if they make 55 to 60 out of 100 decisions right. I mean, your superhero, Warren Buffett, um, is of the view that you just have to make have more winners than losers. And as long as you're ahead, you're making money, you'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, it's a very simplistic view because nobody wants to do 51% good and 49% bad. You want more, a lot more going right than wrong. Well, uh, d- true, but I think, um, I, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but Sir John Templeton, who, who launched a, a, a business now called Templeton Asset Management, Franklin Templeton, a very famous global business. And I think he said he over his long career, he was right 51% of the time and he created an incredible amount of wealth for himself for his uh, his investors and and the point is that the mistakes that you make you, you limit the impact of those mistakes and the successes you let those run for as long as possible so so there, there's some art and, uh, to, to the science of, of investing okay but, so I mean sorry yes but but what I think we need to start with is that there is you know like a pack of cigarettes there needs to be a huge health warning with with investing in shares and I was going to just tell you that our make money Monday special edition where we talk to well-known people about their money and how they manage their money and the lessons they've learned without fail each and every single individual who has ever managed a share portfolio of their own and these are people who are some CEOs and some directors of companies and some actors and some singers and some art collectors and wine experts and all sorts of people Every single one of them has stopped doing it because they've made <laughs> mistakes that have hurt them or they've, they've, they've lost confidence in their ability to make sensible long-term calls and they've happily outsourced that process to a third party. Yeah, so, so I think the, the, to, to me, I would say when you're going to start a, a, a process like this and if you want to learn about investing, and I think we don't really know much about, uh, about, uh, about the person that, that's asking us the question. We literally got that question. Yeah. So we don't know if, it, if they're experienced or not or how much money or, or, or whatever. But we, what ass- I, we assume they know zip. They know zip and they're starting out is, is the, the other assumption I'm going to make. Right. So, so if you're going to do that, then, then do it with a, a small amount of money that you can totally afford to lose. You can afford to lose every cent of the money that you're going to put into the stock market. That has to be the, uh, the opening gamut here. And if you're going to do that, then I think um, m- make sure that the way you trade those shares is important. So in other words, you don't want to go to a place that's going to charge you 150 rand as a transaction cost. Because if you're only going to invest a thousand bucks, then then 150 rand is a huge transaction charge. You're never going to make up that. That is 15%. And yeah. I mean, at best... 
Um, last year was a pretty good year on markets, but in the previous two or three, you would never have made your money back in those in those three years. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, you, you expect to get about 12 to 15% a year from the stock market over a long period of time. So so if you lose all of all of that in, in, in one, one shot in transactions, and the other thing is you can't just buy one share. You can't just do be lazy, do enough homework on one company that, that now is going to make you money because unfortunately that company might be Steinoff, and in which case you wiped out most of your wealth. So you're going to need to buy quite a few different businesses if you're going to do this and therefore you need to make sure the transaction char- uh, costs are very low so so look for the more fintech businesses look for the newer companies out there that are prepared to trade at very low costs you know some of these are now charging you 0.5 or 0.6 percent without a minimum so if you you know if you're trading 100 rand and they're charging you 60 cents well okay you know, that that's, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. And and then you can take your thousand bucks and you can buy 10 shares. But, but that is the change in the dynamic of what has happened on the JSE in recent years. Because it used to be that you would have to go to a stockbroker um, and you would have to open up a stockbroking account with that stockbroker and you would have to then deposit money in their account um, and they would then buy the shares on your behalf and um, they would then hold those shares and save custody for you and you might get a statement once a month to tell you how things are going. Um, and you're paying for that service, and that's um, everyone's entitled to make a make a living. Um, but thank goodness that that business model has been turned on its head. Exactly, and I think that's why I'm prepared to change my answer in terms of of people starting out that they should do it, but just do it with a small amount of money, and then spread out your your investments across a range. So, so how do we how do you go about this? And I think the starting point here is you you have to be prepared when you're investing in shares to do a, a large amount of homework. You can't you can't just read a newspaper headline or listen to you and me talk about a company that we think you know is good because we you know we've done our our, our you know 30 seconds of of discussion about it you're actually going to have to go and really do the homework to understand that business why is it growing you know what's its protection around competition how is it going to price itself all of this and for the vast majority of people they simply don't have the time to do this particular project justice. Sure, you can join an investment club, for example. You could get together with a group of mates. You could um, divide up the process. You you could do your reading. You could do your research, have your meetings, and you could meet together and discuss this, these ideas. But as an individual to do it and to do it properly, to really understand why you should be buying first round over Standard Bank or Standard Bank over Ned Bank or Ned Bank over Barclays Africa or APSA, how does an ordinary human being with a day job, two kids, a mortgage and uh, a shopping habit, um, for, for argument's sake, make, have to find the time to I, make, those, make those decisions? I think you, 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 your, your first point is a good one. You need to spread the workload. You need to, you need to divide that, up, um, that research up across, uh, across a range of people. And nowadays, the nice thing about, about the world we're in now is there, you know, there are investment forums. In other words, you can, you can actually join forums which, which might, in, in another sense, be an enormous investment club and start to understand as a group you know, what's going on and, and how, how uh, markets work. Uh, I think I think you do need to do a, lo- a large amount of reading as well about investing and, and, and studying the greats like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and those people to understand uh, how they, they choose shares. And then you need to go and you still need to go and do the homework. You still need to go and read the company's annual reports and read three or four of those. So, so I'm not discouraging people from doing it. I'm saying it's a great thing to do. 
but you really have to go and put in the work. And and if you're not going to do that, then I'm going to give you two two solutions. Step one, which is then maybe the one that's not going to surprise you so much, is you can still use that that stockbroking account to buy exchange traded funds. Yeah. And I think that requires a lot less homework. And and you're still going to have to do some homework because you're going to need to find out what exchange traded fund you're going to buy. So is it going to be? And there's one? a universe of nearly a hundred of the things now. Yeah. Um, so suddenly it's be that's become a, a lot more complicated than it was ten years ago. Yeah. And, and I think you know the, the, if I look at um, if I look at the questions we get on on, on exchange traded funds you know it's it just the, the plethora of these um, d- doesn't necessarily make the work harder because I think you need to be quite quite simple if you're starting out buy one that covers a broad market so for example you can buy one in South Africa that covers the whole world stock market it's literally called the MSCI world index so so that covers the world you've done the world well, well done you don't have to do any more homework on that what you need to know there is what the cost of that exchange traded fund is so not the buying cost but what is the running cost of that can, can I be critical of that particular approach and say that that wasn't the question well he wants to buy shares we've just we've just helped no, no, him buy no, shares. no 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 this this person wants to buy shares directly um because people like the idea of owning individual shares people like to go to spur and think mm, i want to own shares in this company they like to go to spar if they, they've got a preference of spar over pick and pay and they and, and they might want to buy a spar share over a pick and pay or they may think that woolies is the world's greatest investment because they haven't looked at david jones in australia um and and they just like the way the shops look and so they might want to buy some woolies so that every time they go into these 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 companies or into these shops or have an experience with the brands in which they're invested, they sort of feel a bit of ownership. No, no problem with it. Just do the homework then. That's really going. Yeah. It's going back to point number one. Then yeah. then do it with caution. You know, re, read the label. Um, re, read the warning label on the box. Make sure you've done the homework. And and then you know, doing that 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 sort of in, um, you know on the ground research is not a bad thing at all. So the problem is it's it's easy to experience retailers. It's easy to experience banks yourself. You can go and do the homework. Very hard to go and experience a miner, for example. Yeah. You know, a, a miner. And, and how can you tell um, who is a better miner of platinum or a better miner of gold and who better manages their reserves and who better manages um, the price they are able to get because they, they they release their resources at a particular moment in time when when markets are good or markets are bad exactly and, and I think the other, the other problem is if you if you only focus on the businesses that you deal with what you're going to end up doing is dealing with retailers banks uh, cell phone companies maybe telecom or, or broader communications businesses let's say you know nowadays internet businesses as well but 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 you're not really going to cover their economy and that's the problem for me in, in this in this scenario is that your 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 drivers of what moves those businesses are largely the same so what drives a bank and what drives a retailer uh, are not very different and so now if interest rates move yeah. it has a big impact on your portfolio so I would say uh, you're going to have to then you are really going to have to rely on, on a lot of homework so so I'm, I'll take your criticism but I still it's think it's not criticism; it's an observation, which is different. Okay, um, so, <laughs> so so what I would say is may, maybe start with with then saying um, I believe in the banking sector at the moment because it's cheap and and I think our, our South African banks are good. Nothing stops you buying then a, a sector exchange traded fund, as an example. So uh, and and still then you get the experience of when you go to your bank, you know, you, somewhere along the line you're a part owner. But I would still say um, I would I would spread my risks. In other words, I would then have my individual shares that I bought in combination with something else, whether it then is a basket of exchange-traded funds or a unit trust, that doesn't matter. And I think that's the experience of your Make Money Mondays guests is mm. that they, they probably started over-committed too much money to their share portfolio, had 
probably an excess of confidence, which is you know largely based on uh, often on ignorance in the beginning, um, and and didn't have something else. Whereas I think the people that I've seen that have done this successfully, typically they would have you know eighty or ninety percent of their assets elsewhere managed you know properly um, in a, in a nice spread portfolio, but then they've still got that experience themselves of buying the individual shares. And what's really interesting is how often they do a lot better than than those other funds in in certain periods, and how often they do so much worse uh, w- w- when things go against them. But what it does do is it helps them make better decisions about their whole portfolio. So, so I like this because it gives you a really good context as an investor to judge your other investments. Whereas if you've got no idea, if you've got no clue about what markets are doing, how hard or how easy it is, then you just look at your portfolio and it's gone down and you're just saying, oh, this is a terrible portfolio. And in fact, it might not be. And, and, and being an investor and someone that's actually put the work in in the beginning, you start to understand this game a lot better. You call it a game. Um, and again, that's one of the bits of terminology that gets people going, okay, so it's a game. No, it's not a game. It's a game that costs you tens of thousands of rand if you're not, if you're not smart about it. Uh, there's the upside and the downside to paying very close attention to your own share portfolio. It can become obsessive um, where you're looking at it at breakfast, lunch and supper time and then twice again before you're going to bed, losing sleep and waking up first thing in the morning to, making, uh, to try and see what the Dow did last night to see what direction that's going to drive on the JSE and how it's going to impact on your shares. And that's maybe a good or a bad thing because it, it, it means that you're engaged and you're keeping a very close watch on stuff. But it also leads to people making knee-jerk decisions and panicking in and out of shares and positions and stuff. So it's amazing. Um, you know, for example, in the States, they, they, they studied how, how investors' performance changed as they were given more information about the stock market. So, so there's a, Charles Schwab is, is one of the very big online brokerages in America. And as they gave their clients more market information, in other words, real-time prices, you know, they, they, could, they could track the, the, the portfolio and, and what the market was doing live as opposed to 15 minutes or 30 minutes delay or or something like that, what they found was the performance of their clients' portfolios uh, reduced uh, as they were given more live information. Yeah. So, so what I would say is, you, you, you've got to, uh, to me, I would take the Warren Buffett approach, which is to say, you, you, you've only allowed to make five investment decisions. He, he says in your lifetime, I think that's a, bit, that's a bit strict, but five investment decisions per year, five. And that could be the decision to buy something or the decision to sell something. That's already two. Yeah. So, so if you do that and you say to yourself, I, that I'm going to win if I transact less, th- then you start to get a, b- a better picture of how to make decisions. And I think what goes on day to day, week to week is, is largely noise. That's not going to help you make a long-term decision. You need to look at the stuff. Uh, I think even once a month is, is absolutely fine. Uh, once you've done your research on what to buy. And what you really want to do is buy with a view to never selling. And, and I think that's the point is a lot of the time, you know, Bitcoin provides a great example. People are buying with a very specific view to selling in a week or a month or a year. And I see it was a JP Morgan that's being sued in the States now because, you know, they're, they're charging people with buying their credit, their Bitcoin on their credit card. Now, if you're going to start doing shares uh, with, with money like that, you just need to know you've already lost before you've started. So what you're doing now is you're, you're buying with a view to saying, I'm in this for 7, 10, 15 years, and hopefully I'm going to make a lot of money, but I don't plan to sell unless something goes horribly wrong. The wisdom this evening of Warren Ingram. Warren Ingram is a financial advisor. He is a financial advisor and a director at Galileo Capital. Um, If anybody in your circle wants to get into trading shares, please make sure that they listen to this podcast. Um, You can listen to the whole Money Show podcast, but Warren's got his own podcast, the personal finance podcast uh, from the Money Show, and you can listen to it there. It's really valuable. Share it with everybody you know who wants to buy and sell shares. 
This is The Money Show. I'm Bruce Whitfield. Welcome to the show this evening. Uh, Jennifer Cohen joins us. We've managed to track her down, Small Business Institute Director in the Karoo. I think that answers our questions, why it was difficult to get hold of you, Jennifer. Um, I asked the question earlier. Ivan Pillay, um, charged with a criminal offence this week, his case moved from the Magistrates Court to the High Court. He's one of the, the so-called rogue unit at SARS. Ordinarily, when a director of an entity says, I'm under criminal investigation, I've been charged with a criminal offence, um, any organisation on which they serve would gratefully accept an offered resignation. It saves the trouble of firing them. Yet the Small Business Institute has not taken that step. Why not? Well, Bruce, I think it doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to interpret the charges as a act designed to prevent Mr. Pillay and his colleagues um, of becoming reappointed as part of President Ramaphosa's new dawn. He and his colleagues have made it very clear for months now that they would be available. These charges came with no forewarning. Um, we just see it as part of the political game that's still going on in this country. We had an Indaba about a month ago, and everybody on every panel suggested that we're not out of the woods yet, and so we just have to support him publicly. Um, the FBI, the Small Business Institute, is concerned with a lot of aspects of the business environment. Um, on behalf of our members, we wanted to be on record saying that without competence in the public service, proper governance, adherence to the rule of law, we have no chance of achieving, achieving inclusive growth and job creation. Uh, laying criminal charges against uh, Mr. Pillay following the discrediting of the KPMG report and the Sunday Times fictitious portrayal of this road unit just seemed to have very little credibility in our minds and the decision was unanimous to the board. Uh, let's not forget that KPMG, of course, not only withdrew the report but then paid back the 33 million rand they'd achieved in fees to SARS to emphasize the point that the report that was utilized to get rid of, uh, of Ivan Pillay and his colleagues couldn't be relied upon. I mean, that, that, that's the bottom line, and that explains it very nicely. What does, uh, for interest's sake, Ivan Pillay do for the Small Business Institute? <laughs> well, the FBI, as you know, um, is a sort of resuscitated version of what was the AHI, which was founded 75 years ago to represent the interests of business chambers. Um, we're a member of BUSA. And last year, Chairman Bernard Plantpool and our Vice Chairman um, Sipo Nkosi spearheaded a new sort of memorandum of incorporation, reconstituted it and transformed the board, um, and it was all built around portfolios of responsibility. Um, so Ivan and his other former colleague, Yelisa Kiki, are both involved in quite a bit of, I guess you could call it sort of desktop research. Um, in, a, in one of our first meetings, I remember Ivan saying that um, we need to understand all the institutions in government whose purpose it is to serve small business. What do they do? What funds or assistance are available? Do they deliver? How do we understand what the red tape is? Can it be curtailed? Can it be more efficient? And then he and, and Neilisa will look at ways of suggesting how to improve these issues, um, help explain what's available to our members and to the smaller business, small business community at large, and then at, at the same time identifying what the private sector and the FBI can do. And then, at the, and then in addition, they want to make a sort of business case for government to allocate funding properly. Um, you know, one of the things, too, that we've advocated in the, since the beginning of the year and was part of our response to the SONA statement by the president is that in the Ministry of Small Business, uh, the, Act, the Small Business Act requires that every ministry look at what their legislation or regulations they promulgate 
and look at the effect they have on small businesses, and none do that sufficiently well. So these are sort of some of the things that Ivan's um, devoting his mind and time to for us. Jennifer Cohen, thank you. Small Business Institute Director Jennifer Cohen this evening. The Small Business Institute rejecting an offer by Ivan Pellet to resign uh, from the board of that institute, uh, seeing it as part of a broad political conspiracy, of course, um, part of the whole state capture story. Um, it's interesting to see Trevor Manuel issue a statement via his lawyers today confirming that uh, he has been called as a state witness in this case against uh, Ivan Pellet and Van Lochrenberg and others, um, confirming he made a statement as he's required to do by law when he was asked to do so and that he has and that he could be called as a witness in the case but he stressed and this is the good bit and I'm quoting from the statement that he released the fact that I am listed as one of the witnesses who may be called to testify for the prosecution should not in the circumstances be interpreted as an endorsement by me of the charges or of the process adopted by the state in this matter that's very clear very classic uh, Trevor Manuel uh, also pouring cold water on this bizarre attempt to continue in these uh, in in charging these guys the money show small business all these years all these years we're chatting tracy webster and i that's what we're doing that's what you do when tracy webster comes into the studio you have to chat because otherwise um you've got to get let her get a breath um small business focus brought to you by chartered accountants of south africa responsible business leaders tracy webster is with us this evening a great pleasure to see her again chief executive at the enterprise room uh tracy webster's a money things uh, when we did the um when we did our 1000 rand challenge which was a long time ago but lots of fun she was running the branson Centre for Entrepreneurs. Um, she's done something else since then. And now she is uh, with the Enterprise Room. What is the Enterprise Room? The Enterprise Room is a, a transformation consultancy. And what we do is we... Cons- In English, what is that? We consult to large corporates around enterprise and supplier development. We do strategy and advisory on the scorecard. The uh, So all the stuff that Rob Davies says big companies must do in order yeah, to get their make, BE points, in other words, buy your pencils from this guy, buy your fruit from this guy, um, ensure that you get your cleaning services from this guy, not those guys, that kind of thing. That's exactly what we do. We do the strategy on the one side, and then we source and select and grow and accelerate uh, small black-owned businesses and plug them into procurement opportunities. Uh, and so how many businesses are you caretaking or are you whose hand are you holding? We are holding the hand of 450 SMEs. Well, that's brilliant. Yes, that is fantastic. And are these all Gauteng-based SMEs or do you have a national footprint? National footprint. And, and the spread, say, between Joburg and Cape Town? Predominantly Joburg. Predominantly Joburg. But, uh, and the sorts of businesses that, that have come to you and, what's, and what do you do for them? Every type of business you can imagine. So whether it's in manufacturing, or whether it's uh, setting up young unemployed people in a turnkey uh, spaza solution and, and getting them employed and employing others, or it could be on the med tech side, fintech side. I mean, absolutely any industry and at any stage of the business, we work with them. There is so much hunger in South Africa for opportunities, so much hunger for capital, um, a deep desire to get going and do work. And it's so hard for people to get the help that they need. Do you accept what one in 10 people who come through your door, one in 100? I mean, what is, uh, and, and how, what process do you go through to, to identify? who is going to actually fly rather than throwing lots of money at lots of people and 
and, and therefore actually undermining the process of supporting those who actually will make it. Absolutely, Bruce. I would say that we are demand-led and SME-centric. And what I mean by that is that we work with corporates. Mm-hmm. We unpack their um, their procurement and all of the commodities um, that, 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 that they have. Uh, then we identify if they already do have some black-owned businesses that are, are in those different commodities. And then we say, let's take those first and start growing and accelerating them. And hopefully they can get more business with you and more access to procurement. And then we will uh, you know, introduce them around to other corporates and plug them into that supply chain so we can ensure that they are going to be sustainable and that they are going to grow. If they don't have any uh, black-owned businesses in a particular commodity, then we go out and we source and select. And we have a very rigorous process around that. We do a business diagnostic on those businesses and we unpack where the weaknesses are. But then we'll work with that corporate to say, help us give bespoke mentorship to these businesses so that they can overcome some of those hurdles. Um, Because at the end of the day, you want to ensure that the type of SME that's going to be procuring from you is solid and it's good for growth and it's going to be able to deliver according to your needs. How receptive are corporates which are under pressure, which are time, which are time poor um, to this idea of actually you must grow your own suppliers? It is a tough one, but I think the way in which uh, the codes have changed over the last year to 18 months, a lot of the emphasis is on supplier development and preferential procurement. So at the end of the day, you have to get it done. And I think what you have to do is is make sure that you've got an organization such as ourselves that can journey with that entrepreneur and, and really help them be able to deliver in the way in which um, your your procurement works because at the end of the day you want to have a supplier that is reliable that is consistent that is delivering quality etc i think it is tough uh, but i think at this stage in south africa we don't have a choice um, and i think this is what real transformation looks like well, we have to do uh, is enterprise room a for-profit organization or we are okay uh, and so how do you make your money then so we're a consultancy so we charge our time so you charge your time to the corporates to yes, solve they, their they, problems. They've got a scorecard problem. Yes. Um, and, and so you then say to them, we can solve your scorecard problem because we've got the database of potential suppliers and we will help and nurture and grow those suppliers on your behalf so that you can then say, we have got the following people as our suppliers on our scorecard, tick, 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 tick. And, 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 and theoretically, everyone is happy. Absolutely. I said theoretically. No, I, I, <laughs> no. I actually, I think uh, from our side, we, we're more interested in, in corporates not seeing this as a tick box exercise, but actually harnessing that spend um, and using it to drive their own innovation going forward. And I think every CEO goes to sleep at the end of the, at the, end of the day going, how am I going to be around in the next 10 years and how do I need to innovate on my own business? I mean, the brutal reality is if South African companies, if South African corporates don't help the SME sector to grow, one, they don't get their points, but two, it becomes a question of, of, of sustainability and a question of creating an environment in which you as the large corporate can continue to thrive. If the, sister, if the environment around you is dis- functional and not working, you can't succeed longer term. Absolutely, Anna. and I think the more we, we get this right and the more we work together, uh, the better it is going to be for everyone at the end of the day in the entire ecosystem. 
crazy, she used the word, banned word ecosystem. We don't like that word. <laughs> we don't uh, like that word. I don't know why I don't like that <laughs> no, word. Okay. Tra- let's see whether or not we can survive um, this uh, this impasse. Uh, Tracy, <laughs> Tracy Webster is my guest this evening. She is the chief executive at the Enterprise Room, connecting corporates to small business uh, suppliers and helping those small business suppliers to grow their businesses to become reliable and big businesses themselves into the future. Every single business in the world was once a small business. Half of the great global giants you see right now started in garages. I've got a great graphic, which I like to use in talks that I give, of the garages in which Walt Disney sketched Mickey Mouse for the first time for Steamboat Willie and where the Google garage was and where uh, Bill Gates started Microsoft and where, of course, Steve Jobs and the Apple dream started. These all garage businesses. There is a bright future for small businesses if they are grown and nurtured in an appropriate way. One of the ways in which you can incentivize businesses to grow and develop is to incentivize the way they innovate, the way in which they solve real problems. And Pablo always tells us on a Thursday night that if your business isn't solving somebody's problem, well, then you don't have a business. Um, So one of the things that Tracy is going to be talking to us in a couple of minutes' time about is the Africa Innovation Summit. We'll talk all about that in just a moment. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Tracy Webster, Chief Executive at the Enterprise Room, is in studio with me this evening. The Africa Innovation Summit. Um, people miss you. Another band word is innovation because people lie and pretend things are innovative when they're not innovative. Um, and it gets very, very boring and very frustrating. Assure me that the African Innovation Summit is not that. It is not that. Excellent. Tell me about it then. So the Africa Innovation Summit, uh, it's the second edition being hosted in Kigali uh, in, from the 6th to the 8th of June. And basically what it does, and I'm going to use that terrible word once again, it brings t- together all the players in the innovation ecosystem, Bruce, uh, to support socio-economic development and structural transformation um, to really to bring about change um, of some of the greatest challenges we're facing in Africa. And, and so the, these are, so I, I would assume that this is saying, look, there are lots of problems in the African continent that uh, their businesses, large and small, can, can solve. Um, and we need to reward those that come up with the best innovations to solve innovations, uh, problems that are particularly real to the majority of Africans. It, it is that. But I think at the end of the day, in order for these innovations to go to scale, we do need to have the presidents, the ministers, the policymakers, the financiers, um, and, and and all the innovators in the room, those entrepreneurs in the room, as well as the academics. Um, so everyone, all the stakeholders need to be in the room. Uh, and we get together, We Enterprise Room is selecting the top 50 innovations across the continent. So, sorry, you are sitting in Joburg and yes. you are going to be choosing... Africa's top 50 innovations. Absolutely. And so far we've had uh, 440 applications. Can you give me an idea of the spread of ideas without ruining the the, the punchline in, in, in June? So uh, just to tell you that the innovations we're looking for, those people that are addressing food insecurity, uh, water sanitation, healthcare, um, and also energy as well as governance. So those are the types of innovations we've called for. Um, we've had a whole spread across the entire continent. In fact, uh, the delegates that are attending are participating from 47 different countries across the continent. Um, I'm glad to see that we've got a lot of francophone uh, countries that have also submitted um, applications. 
And a, a lot of what we're seeing is very much in the ag sector, to be honest. Um, agriculture. Agriculture. Ag. 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 Sorry. Agriculture. Agriculture. Um, and a, a lot of healthcare, very interesting um, innovations. But as I said, we're really tackling that next week as the applications are still live. Sure. I mean, I, and you don't want to steal your own punchline on, yes. on this particular one. Exactly. But, but what are you genuinely motivated by what you're seeing, by the way, the sort of thinking that is evolving on our continent. People are saying, well, we could get Bayer to provide the solution. We could get General Electric to do it. But actually, I've got a better way of doing this thing and uh, and, and and creating the solution to the problem. Yeah, I think the, the innovations are, are incredible. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. The first edition that I went to was in Cape Verde in 2014. Um, and, and one of the youngsters from Togo arrived and it was before everyone was really talking about 3D printing and this youngster um, sort of living on a, um, on a trash heap basically had cobbled together this entire 3D printer that he was just doing. I mean, it was already happening before it became uh, the, the most amazing sensation around the world and he didn't even realise that it had taken off and it was starting to take off. And he bought this whole contraption just sort of cobbled together with anything on a trash heap uh, and there he was doing 3D printing. Uh, so how does, it, how does the participation of a young kid like that in, uh, in, in a, in a uh, competition, uh, in an initiative like this, how, how did that change his life? So actually one of the most exciting emails I got this year was him saying, it's back, it's in Kigali. He said, I am mobilizing uh, Togo because this fundamentally shifted everything. He said, it's the best thing that has ever happened to me. And I think young people like that don't get into the room with policymakers, presidents, ministers, where they are the center of attraction, saying this is what is prohibiting me from getting to the next level. This is what I need. And this is how policies need to change. And if I want to scale up uh, beyond the borders of my own country, these are the things that are prohibiting me from getting to the next level. Uh, and you've got the ears mm. of the right people to start bringing about those changes to create the right environment for innovation to thrive and go to scale. Typically, if somebody thinks that they've come up with a really good idea and they can change the world, they can change the continent, they can improve um, in these various categories of food and water and sanitation and health and energy and governance, if they think they can contribute in any one of those and they want to test their innovation against the best that the continent has got to offer, what do they need to do? They've got a week, I assume. They need to get the application in by the end of this weekend. www.africaninnovationsummit.com Okay, africaninnovationsummit.com. They've got until Sunday night. They've got till Sunday night. Because we've already, Monday, we've Monday, got 440 yeah. <laughs> and we're only going to showcase 50. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and how what are you going to be the parameters that you use to showcase sure. fifty? Because you could have three great water solutions, but you know one's going to be better than the other. So you take one water solution, or one agriculture solution, or one um, great three D printing solution, or whatever it might be. Um, or do you take competitors into the room too? We will take competitors into the room too, but also bear in mind that a lot of these businesses are on different parts of the continent. So we need to give everyone a, a, a fair chance and to really showcase. Uh, the different businesses that are in the different countries. That's number one. Number two, we are also looking at those ideas that are already at an MVP stage so that they've already a minimal viable product. They've tested it and they're ready to commercialize. That's one aspect. Do you get investors in the room as well? Yes. 
And then the other, um, the other group that we're looking at, those that have already got traction but are wanting to scale. And then we also have a section on ideas that need to go to the next level. So, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of opportunity within the various different stages that you're at with these innovations. How seriously is the South African government treating this? I mean, uh, do we have a commitment from Rob Davies that he will be in the room at the Innovation Summit? Well, not necessarily at Kigali, but we are actually having a, a satellite summit happening uh, at the same time that is being run by the Department of um, Science and Technology. So they're okay, hosting science, that. Science There'll be too. one happening in Ethiopia and one happening in Dakar. So you're going to have three uh, different satellite summits happening simultaneously. When you started out doing, looking at small businesses, what, it must be 10 years ago now, and um, and working with small businesses, how... How exponential has the change been? So I think, and, and I really do believe the, the codes of good practice are bringing about the change that we need to see. Because back in the day with the Branson Center, being able to broker market opportunities for these entrepreneurs was really tough. But because now the codes are actually changing behavior, corporates are much more open to start taking this very seriously. And that's what every entrepreneur is. They need needs. They need access to finance and the right type of finance at the right stage of their business. But they need market opportunities. So plugging them into corporate. Uh, procurement opportunities is the fundamental thing that is changing these businesses to make them established and sustainable. And, and, you, and But it didn't happen voluntarily. Um, it had to be legislated. It had to be forced. Mm. Um, and so the DTI on that basis has actually done right. a good thing. They've done a great thing. I'm, I'm in a, a big fan of what they've done. Okay. Well, that was, I mean, lots of corporates would go, Tracy Webster. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but but the, we're not going to get a sustainable and transformed society unless we oblige companies to do that right thing. And, and Bruce, we need to remember that if you look at the US um, and you look at how many SMEs they've got that actually create most of the employment and actually the GDP at the end of the day. So yeah. we've got to get these SMEs sustainable. They've got to grow because they are going to be creating the jobs of the future. And, and you mentioned that you, know, you got Francophone Africa getting involved. And that to my mind, is quite a big step because there's there's a very clear divide. It's an invisible line that sort of goes exactly. up the colonial borders of Africa um, set up in the last 150 years where there are people who speak French, there are people who speak Portuguese, there are people who, who speak indigenous languages, and there's quite a big Anglo um, sort of speaking community on the African continent as well. And very seldom do these guys intersect. Well, the founder of the Africa Innovation Summit is based in Cabo Verde, which is a Portuguese mm -hmm. um, island. And the first uh, African summit happened um, in Cape Verde. And so you've got uh, the support of the ex-president um, Pedro Pires, who was also Mo Ibrahim, who won the Mo Ibrahim oh, okay, Award. Yes. And then they've got an incredibly impressive advisory board um, that are representatives from across the continent. So you've got Donald Cabareco, you've got Vera Songwe, you've got um, uh, Christina Duarte, who was a finance minister of um, Cape Verde, uh, Geraldine fraser Molakete. So you've got this, this incredible advisory board that is just mobilizing um, and, and, and getting the word out there. And yeah, so everything is sort of being... Uh, translated into to French and Portuguese because we really don't want to exclude anyone. This, this mm. needs to be about Africans coming together, cross-pollinating ideas and, and seeing these innovations scale. If you think you've got a bright idea, if you've got an innovation, Strive Masiwa, I was talking about a quote that I found earlier today, saying you know, the, the, the playing fields are, are level for, for the engineer, for the farmer, for the builder. All you've got to do if you really want to stand out is add some innovation. 
Um, and and, and, and guest is one of our speakers. It's Drive Masiu. Oh, very good. <laughs> um, I'm, glad, I'm delighted that he's going to be there. But food, water, sanitation, health, energy and governance. AfricaInnovationSummit.com. Um, you've got until Sunday evening at half past seven. I've just made up the time. At midnight. midnight. We'll be giving them to midnight. Midnight. Uh, well, you've got probably till seven o'clock on Monday morning because nobody's going to look at it before then. <laughs> um, but uh, the, 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 the 450 odd entries are going to be sifted through next week if you want to be part of that group um, and be stand a chance to be considered to attend in Kigali, um, the Africa Innovation Summit happening from the 6th to the 8th of June. You need to move quickly. Tracy Webster, nice to see you. Thank you for coming. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Koketso Sanibai in Cape Town and Karima Sanibai in Johannesburg to take you through from 8 o'clock this evening. Thank you so much for listening to The Money Show. Back again tomorrow. Have a very good Thursday evening. Good night.